0: The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The Paracast, dot plus. You're in the Paracast. The gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We're talking about strange places, strange people. And our guest this week is Maxim Furick. And he has an extensive background in psychology and communications, all this other stuff. But we're here to focus on a book he wrote called, I'm going to really take this to the nth degree coal region hoodoo paranormal tales from inside the pit i really want to sound like vincent price when i say that <laughs> maxim
2: i like the way you're doing that gene i mean it comes across it resonates so uh, yeah and i and i could use a manager too so uh, you know i know you, if you have any free time maybe we could talk about that
1: well i charge 97 uh, <laughs> percent yeah <laughs> It's kind of like the Beatles song Tax Man. It was written in the 1960s by George Harrison, and Uh the tax rate in the UK then was 95%. So one of the lyrics in the song, it's one for me, 19 for you, I think is the proper lyric there. And that's What what they were complaining about.
2: Yeah, sure. And one reason why punk rock was so popular, I mean, they were just pissed off at the government and the taxes and everything else. So punk rock represented a form a lifestyle and anger, you know, over here in the United States. I mean, those same songs were just dance music, never had the same uh, connotation it did over in the UK. So, you know, they were uh, more serious about a lot of things. And I think their music might have been more representative of what they were going through at the time.
1: Well, it's certainly true, for example, that people like Sean Connery left the UK because of the taxes, and he was the kind of guy who really watched his money. I think he sued almost every studio he worked for, and I saw a 60-minute show there where you see Sean Connery and his wife, and he's got his reading glasses on, and he's going through the financials with a fine tooth comb. This is before everything was digital, so he was looking for how the studios were cheating him because... He, at one time in his time, was the most famous actor in the world. Sure. And he didn't get a fraction of it. Another story, of course, is the late Jim Garner, when he did Rockford Files on TV. I believe that's Universal. So Comcast Universal may want to sue me now. He sued them because the show was on for years, very successful. I guess he was supposed to get something on the back end. But instead, they hit him on the back end with a panel, because it showed a loss of money. This is a successful network TV show, syndication rights, it lost money.
2: Yeah, and for some of your younger listeners out there, with Sean Connery and the James Bond movies, I mean, a lot of us guys wanted to be just like James Bond. I mean, he got all the babes, uh, killed all the villains. I mean, he was like the man's man. He was sort of one of the idols, you know, for the 60s. I mean, He was just too smooth. I mean, you know, you couldn't kill him. You know, he was just... Slick and smooth, sophisticated and all that. So, uh, you know, one of our, I don't know, I guess, role models in a sense. You know, one of our idols. or
1: You know, there's a story out there that when he did the first film, Dr. No, the director or producer of both had to kind of train him to act like a sophisticated man because he was just kind of a street guy from Scotland. And before he learned how to say Bond, James Bond, yeah, To say it the proper way, as he says it in the movie very early on in Dr. No, they had to get him, shall we say, under the influence of several glasses of an alcoholic beverage.
2: Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's good. That's a good story. Yeah,
1: He learned the uh-huh. shtick, though. And I uh-huh. think also the best Indiana Jones film with Harrison Ford was the one where his father, played by Sean Connery, was present. They interacted beautifully. Yeah, I don't know why we're L- doing this, but
2: <laughs> it all fits, doesn't? It? I mean, this is. I mean, this is what maybe podcasting should all about you know just like being in the living room with the fireplace and just having a chat about whatever i mean eventually eventually we're going to talk about Coregion reach and who do you know my paranormal book but this is fine i mean uh, you know and, and again i just want to say this uh, from the beginning that i want to thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners and to tell them about you know a little bit of my, about my career and about some of the books that i've written i appreciate this uh, you know this opportunity
1: Okay, it says here in your bio, he considers himself a student of the paranormal and has explored and published numerous articles on what some have called the coal region hoodoo. Now, when you say hoodoo, by the way, I think of Louisiana and Credence Clearwater Revival. Of course, they were from Northern California. Yep, right. And maybe what it is is that John Fogarty was reincarnated from somebody in Louisiana and that's why he learned to sing as he did
2: you could say that or you could say that maybe uh, that uh, Louisiana hoodoo was channeled through him you know whatever 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 term we want to use that Bayou country you know that whole culture you know, uh, really affected him influenced him and he took it and ran with it he became an ab- an ambassador of Louisiana voodoo thing and I mean he did it better than anybody else he had the voice he had the three or four chords. And he was just incredible, and uh, I mean, everybody loves CCR, and I just hated what happened when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, with his uh, fellow bandmates, I just thought that he was, you know, highly disrespected when he was there on that stage, and uh, you know, it hurt to watch that. And then even before that, with Fantasy Records, they gave him a raw deal, and he was bitter about that. And that's too bad, because, again, John Fogarty's another musical icon, I mean, legendary, prolific, I mean, just a wonderful rock uh, superstar, and yet the, the, some of the challenges that he had. Again, you know, when I talk about the hoodoo, the who hoodoo, I'm talking about some people get the blessing, and some people get the curse. You know, and a lot of times it's a little bit of of both. And uh, John Fogarty, I think, is an example of that.
1: He was performing as of a year or two ago. I don't know if he's continued, but his voice, his voice is still there in his 70s. And his kids are performing. He's got two sons and a daughter, musically adept, which is really good. More interesting there, when he worked for Fantasy Records, the deal was so bad that he wasn't getting money that he deserved from all the songs he wrote. He had to sue them and he had to go through a number of things and for years after he would not perform a Creedence song until they settled and finally he agreed to perform he wasn't of course the only artist ripped off another example is Tommy James and the Mm Shondells because the record company that signed Tommy James was a front for the mob in New York
2: records with Morris Levy
1: Morris Levy, right What happened there is if he needed money, well, he'd hand him some cash. But he was selling tens of millions of records. He wrote a book about it, by the way, I think, 2010, 2011. And although he doesn't discuss it much anymore, he's still around. He does occasionally interview shows on Sirius XM satellite radio. He was interested in UFOs.
2: Okay. No, I didn't know that. Okay. What was the song? Um. Ball of Fire, what was it? There was a song about a UFO, and uh, maybe the uh, Franz Arnold Bridge in New York. Uh, I'm trying to think of what that was, but there was a song about a UFO that Tommy James
1: and the Shandells did. Okay, I know, of course, John Lennon wrote a song about UFOs over New York, and nobody seems to care. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so.
2: Anyway. Yeah, one time I was writing a book about Tommy James and the Shondells. I interviewed uh, Mike Vale, the bass player. Uh, Ron, I forget his last name, the lead guitarist, and, um, you know, was going to do that. I'm good friends with uh, Richie Grasso. Richie Grasso and Tommy James wrote Sweet Cherry Wine. And it was interesting because Tommy and Richie Grasso were Catholics working in a predominantly Jewish business, you know, the Roulette Records, Morris Levy and all them. And uh, he wrote Sweet, they wrote Sweet Cherry Wine about communion you know, to save us, he gave us sweet cherry wine. But when you read Tommy's book, he has maybe a sentence, you know, attributing uh, sweet cherry wine to also Richie Grassell. I mean, Richie Grassel did not get, you know, his due with that. He was the co-writer of the song. And, uh, you know, Richie and I talked about that,
1: you know, numerous times. Let's do our break now, Maximum. Okay. we'll talk a little bit about music trivia before we segue into the power novel. Hand the pit. I need Vincent Price here. Where was Vincent Price when we needed him? With Gene and Tim, you're in The Paracast. Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
3: Yours free at mysolarbackup.com. All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. For your family, for future generations, for all of us. Visit joinallofus.org. And find out how you can become one in a million.
4: No matter where you live, what you make, or who you voted for, there are some things that will impact all of us soon. Whether you're concerned about the alarming increase in man-made disasters, financial institutions collapsing, or worsening food shortages, Americans are preparing in numbers not seen since World War II. What's changed is how we prepare. And the folks at My Patriot Supply have made it easier than ever for you to have peace of mind, knowing you're ready for what's next. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and stock up on over a dozen emergency food kits. These include tasty breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, fruits, veggies, meats, and snacks, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one kit per person. As we all know, calories equals energy equals survival. My Patriot Supply food kits are in stock and shipped discreetly. We've seen too many Americans let down by institutions we used to trust. It's time to rely on ourselves. MyPatriotSupply.com. MyPatriotSupply.com.
5: Are you a business owner? Are you confused by the complexity of the tax laws? We can help. I'm Dan Pilla, and I've been helping business owners solve tax problems for over 40 years. My book, The Small Business Tax Guide, shows proven ways to avoid all the common business tax problems. Don't risk your business. Go to danpilla.com to order your copy. That's danpilla.com. Order now and get a free 15-minute call directly with me, a $99 value. Go to danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Okay. Fascinating discussion here with Maxim Furek. And obviously he's very interested in culture, rock and roll music. Obviously we're talking about Tommy James and the Shondells and the co-author of Sweet Cherry Wine doesn't get his due. I hope he at least got financial credit for what he did on that song.
2: I believe he did, and I don't know if we talked about that very much. But um, you know, uh, Tommy's book did really well. I think it was something about the mob and me, and he's putting together a uh, a, a rock opera, sort of like the uh, the Jersey Boys, and uh, I think that's close to being completed. But uh, yeah, I mean, Tommy James had a great career, and uh, but anyway, I Gene, you know, I used to work as a rock. Journalist, I would go and interview bands and get free tickets to concerts and all that. And I wrote a couple of books. And uh, what happened with the, uh, the Shepton book, I was writing a book about a song called Timothy. Now, the highest charting uh, rock song in northeastern Pennsylvania was Timothy, 1971. That was by a group called The Boys. So I wanted to write a rock mythology connecting the song Timothy with the Shepton mine disaster of 1963. In both cases, there were three guys that went down in the, in the mine, and in the case of uh, Shepton, the two guys were rescued you know, and then the one guy they never found. So, there were allegations in these little patch towns, you know, back in Pennsylvania, these little tiny little coal towns were called patches, but the people in Shepton and Oneida asked the rescued miners, what happened to your mate? What happened to Louis Bova? And there were allegations of cannibalism. So, that was 63. In 71, when Rupert Holmes. He was 19, 20 years old. He was uh, uh, working for Scepter Records, and he wanted to write a song that was controversial to get the boys some notoriety. So he wrote a song about cannibalism, and that was Timothy. And Timothy seemed to parallel what happened in Shepton. And as I was researching Shepton, I found out that, you know, this story was more— it was. it Vaster than just a song about, you know, a pop song about cannibalism. It was just like more. It was like a uh, an event that is uh, really significant in the annals of parapsychology. That's the Shepton Mind Disaster of 1963, and that was the subject of my first book, Shepton: The Myth, Miracle, and Music.
1: You know, when you say that, you talk about the event in Pennsylvania. I think of a song that was popular in the 60s: New York Mining Disaster, yeah. 1941. From the Bee Gees. Sure. And, of course, the Bee Gees kind of gained a lot and lost a lot because of disco. But if you look into their catalog, these kids wrote amazing music. They had lots of people, Barbra Streisand, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, people doing their songs. Celine Dion did a song from theirs. They could just write all this great stuff, had great natural harmonies. They could sing a cappella at the drop of a penny. Really great, kind of sad that two of the members died prematurely. One, because of a hospital, possible malpractice. So it's kind of sad. But the song was York yeah. Mining Disaster, 1941. Sure. Yeah. I don't recall what they said was a logic in writing that song.
2: Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, when you talk about six degrees of separation and, you know, when you and I were speaking, we were talking the other night and uh, I uh, sort of defined you as an eclectic individual i mean you just have some a whole lot of interest and you're like me i mean we you know a lot of us wear different hats but with the six degrees of of, uh, separation when uh kenny rogers and dolly parton did their islands and the stream tour again a song written by the Bee Gees, it was a year and a half they picked a band called sawyer brown to warm them up for that year and a half and my friend when i was used to go to school in in aquinas college in michigan and my friend jim schulton was the bass player for sawyer brown's So he was on that ride, and they were sort of like country pop, but I mean, still, you know, I don't know, I've seen Sawyer Brown at least seven times, but I mean, they still have that following, and country fans seem to have that loyalty. But anyway, it was because of the Bee Gees and because of uh, Islands in the Stream. Uh, you know, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton, that the uh, Sawyer Brown got that really big opportunity to travel around the world, you know, with uh, Kenny Rogers and to uh, expose, you know, to get a whole, whole new uh, a whole nother audience. So it was kind of neat. You know, funny how that works, you know, that we all have, uh, you know, people in common, I guess, you know, uh, c- you know, connectors.
1: Now, one of the things we can talk about music trivia very briefly before we get more into the paranormal. The other day I saw this documentary film, which is maybe 10 years old, called The Wrecking Crew. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we explained here The Wrecking Crew was a group of maybe 12 to 15 session musicians that worked from the 50s to the 60s and partly the 70s. Right. And what they did was they were the backup band for everybody. I mean, everybody. And one of the reasons you had these studio musicians is because in those days, they didn't have multi-track like now, 24-track, 48-track, whatever you can get in a digital arrangement. You had four-track or something, or two-track. And when you did a recording, you needed to get everything perfect because money was involved. Right. So for the studio, they would use these studio musicians who were super creative, and therefore they could do things on the spot and get a song done in an hour. It might take three months otherwise. Right, yeah, so yeah. The, these people, and there's some of them are still around by the way, but these yeah. people would work for Brian Wilson of the beach boys. Why the beach boys? Because they were a self-contained band. Yes. But to do the advanced stuff that Brian Wilson wanted in the studio Carol Kay on bass, doing the fabulous bass for good vibrations. He had to have all these people do it because they can get it done. And -hmm. then his group, his brother, cousin, and friend, could go and then duplicate the sound. Mm -hmm. So, for example... The monkeys were criticized because their first couple of albums they had studio musicians. It turned out that the birds had studio musicians, yeah, and yeah. Simon and Garfunkel, and all these people. The Association, for example, had studio well, even, musicians.
2: Even, even uh, Phil Spector. I mean, he used the uh, the Wrecking Crew, um, uh, and uh, it was Glenn Campbell who did the lead guitar and helped me, Rhonda. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about the Wrecking Crew, Gene, is that if we, you and I were young teenagers back in L.A., we could have walked into that studio, sang a couple of songs and had them back us. And, and I think we'd be able to you know, get them for some kind of union wages. Uh, I think they were accessible, but a lot of people did that. And I think the Wrecking Crew, you know, they were responsible for shaping a lot of that music in the early 60s. I mean, uh, Leon Russell and, uh, you know, uh, Glen Campbell and, uh, you know, just so many of them. And then I think some of those guys were the Shindogs on Shindig. I think they, uh, they were the backup band for the, for the TV series Shindig.
1: It was so interesting to see how that worked. Of course, Glenn Campbell became famous as a singer. Jimmy Webb, when he did MacArthur Park with Richard yeah. Harris, yeah. who was yeah. the backing band, of course, the Wrecking Crew. Real yeah, fascinating yeah. how that worked. But the monkeys got criticized about, oh, it's a fake TV band because huh. they, people didn't realize at the time that A lot of their favorite bands were using the Wrecking Crew for backup in the studio to get it right the first time. We're going to get it right here with Maxim, Gene, and Tim. You're in The Paracast.
6: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
8: USA News Update. President Biden says talks about the debt ceiling are ongoing. Biden spoke briefly with reporters before boarding Air Force One after addressing Howard University's commencement. He added there are real discussions about a debt ceiling deal, but we're not there yet. Former President Trump canceled an outdoor rally in Iowa Saturday due to stormy weather. Both he and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had scheduled separate events in the Hawkeye State. DeSantis spoke earlier at a GOP fundraiser in Cedar Rapids. He is reportedly set to officially enter the presidential race. At least one person is dead and 11 others injured after a tornado in southern Texas. The twister slammed the community of Laguna Heights early Saturday morning. This is Karen Sloan, USA News.
9: American Funding Now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. 800-721-2477. That's 800-721-2477. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity.
10: Every day we take steps to keep the people we love safe, but some health risks are easy to miss. Ticks hiding in the yard can spread germs that can cause Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mice searching for sources of food can spread bacteria and disease. Mosquitoes breed in standing water and can transmit illnesses like West Nile virus and Zika virus. Cockroaches are drawn to water in the home and can leave behind allergens that trigger asthma attacks. Stinging insects attack in defense of their nests and send more than half a million people to the emergency room every year. Household pests are a threat to our health. Learn what you can do to protect your family at pestworld.org.
11: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the
1: gold standard of paranormal radio. A little bit more about The Wrecking Crew, then we get into the paranormal world. Okay, if you look at some of the songs there, how they develop special lines for songs, like the only number one hit record that Frank Sinatra actually had, and he had a lot of top-selling records, and it was a great artist. He did, with his daughter Nancy, uh, Something Stupid. Something Stupid, yeah. And this guy, Tedesco, I forget his first name, Tedesco was the guitarist who created the lines on that song. Or Sonny and Cher, because yep. Sonny Bono was an assistant with Phil Spector. He learned right. that technique. And uh-huh. so when they did I've Got Your Babe, or The Beat Goes On... Yeah. With the beat goes on, Carol Kay took a very, and she shows you now how she did. She's in her 80s, and she's really sharp. <laughs> she took a basic, simple bass line and did a da-da-da-da, you know, whatever, and created the unique sound and feel of that song. That's where so many of these things came out. Quickly, before we go with that, the monkeys. The monkeys resented having studio musicians do it, but because three of them were musicians already. You know, Mickey Dolans played guitar. Peter Tork did keyboards and the guitar. Davy Jones, of course, yep. played yep. bass and guitar. And Mike Nesmith was a fabulous guitarist and songwriter. Yep. But they decided Mickey Dolans is got to be the drummer. So he had to physically learn the drums. And he'd also watch Hal Blaine and others who did the drum parts on the recordings until he learned it. But the legend goes that in the song Pleasant Valley Sunday, that's from... Jerry Goffin and Carole King. Yeah. The lead guitar part was played by Mike Nesmith. The other thing we forget about the Monkees is that they were no different than the Beach Boys in having studio musicians and going out and doing it themselves. When they came out in public and did the performance, they all played their own instruments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw a recording of Mickey Dolan's playing drums like in the 90s, years after the Monkees broke up, and he wasn't bad. He says, "Is look, I learned the parts for the songs that we played, and he did, and he did well. Right? Doesn't mean he was a crack drummer, but he learned enough to get away with it. But then again, some rock musicians with hit records only know enough to play their songs and nothing else. So what the heck? Anyway, that's the Wrecking Crew. If you go to YouTube, it's free with ads. Watch it because you will see people who were on hundreds or thousands of hit records." won gold records up to Kazoo, platinum records, because they played, but were not always credited on all these hit records going until the, the 70s. And also things like TV shows like Mission Impossible, Hawaii Five-O, They did the themes for it. Let's talk about the paranormal because music is sometimes paranormal. And as we realize, lots of musicians are interested in the paranormal. How did Maxim the writer on rock and culture, become interested in the strange and unknown?
2: I was making a connection between the song Timothy by the boys and the Shepton Mine disaster. Uh, that's all I was going to do. And I just sort of like fell into it. I wasn't looking for the the paranormal, but it sort of found me. I just sort of fell down that rabbit hole. As I was researching the Shepton Mine disaster, I found out that it represented a number of paranormal themes. For example, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and after-death experiences. And then the miners had seen humanoid creatures. They saw, uh, and again, they were trapped for two weeks. They were trapped 330 feet down. in in, in the mine. Uh, It was black. They were crawling on their hands and knees like dogs, sucking in the the coal dust, the coal particles. They said that they saw the image of Pope John the 23rd. So, the Shepton narrative is one of uh, all these paranormal visions, you know, the humanoid creatures and everything. And then When I discovered that, I started to write about it and do the research and talk to people about it. And in 2016, uh, I called it the Shepton Mythology, but the uh, the working title of it was, actual title was Shepton, the Myth, uh, Miracle, and Music. And that became a big thing for me as far as uh, introducing me to the paranormal realm, as far as being on various Paranormal Podcast, etc. So it was just a, a big thing. And uh, back in the day, uh, Tim Schwartz and uh, uh, Timothy uh, uh, Green Beckley had me on their show, along with Richard Toronto. And we talked about the Shefton disaster, as well as Richard Sharp Shaver and the Inner Earth Theory. And Richard's in my book as well. So I didn't go looking for the paranormal, but it sort of found me. And uh, again, that, so that seems to be another hat, I guess, that I'm wearing you know another road that I'm taking and it's pretty fascinating i mean again it's it led to this this interview tonight you know i mean there's just so many people that are fascinated by the paranormal and the, and the supernatural you know especially during these days and again you know i mean um you know uh, everything sort of uh, stays the same you know, nothing's really new under the sun uh but people are just you know really upset about you know what covid did to us with inf- inflation with the uh you know disparity between the rich and the poor with the politics with all that and i think and again i think that in a sense and maybe you could uh you know piggyback on this but i think in a sense that maybe you know visiting the paranormal uh the supernatural it sort of becomes a therapy it gives people uh, uh, a place to go to maybe a, a safe place maybe a place where there's some peace and tranquility away from the turmoil of of 2023 so uh I mean that's one theory, but you you have to realize that. I mean, and I think your listeners realize that there's a lot of interest in the paranormal today, uh, as there's less interest in, in in organized religion. I mean, fewer people are going to the church or the mosque or the temple, and I think more people are, you know, dabbling or experimenting in the supernatural and the paranormal. So it's just uh, a change. It's just what's happening uh, today and. T- Why don't you give us
12: some background on the whole Shepton mystery? Where did it take place?
2: When did it take place? Uh, Yeah, Tim, um, the Shepton narrative, it took place in Shepton, Pennsylvania, which was a tiny little little coal town uh outside of Hazleton, pennsylvania it was in northeastern pennsylvania and this took place in 1963 so three men were trapped for two weeks they were trapped 330 feet you know uh in this mine there was no hope of of extrication and when they were finally rescued this was, uh, this was a story of human survival. Uh, the Associated Press called it one of the most significant uh, stories of, uh, of the year, and it was surpassed only by, do you know the event, 1963? Shefton took place in August. Hmm.
12: I don't know. Why don't you tell us?
2: I will, yes, absolutely. In November, uh, President John Kennedy was assassinated. So the Shepton disaster, that was a huge story. Uh, Associated Press called it one of the top stories of the year. Uh, uh, They had, there were news reporters from Germany, from the UK, from Japan that were watching the story of human survival. There were thousands of people there, National Guard, military people, Salvation Army, uh, the uh, Rubberneckers, the people just gawking that, you know, shouldn't have been there. There were military people there. There were a psychiatrist watching this. You know, there were people that were familiar with bomb shelters and the psychology. You know, the psychological effects of being in a bomb shelter. But this was something different. So they were there just to find out how the miners were going to uh, react and deal with with this. But the after the miners came out, and this was interesting. There's a um, a um, psychological term called symbiosis a symbiotic relationship and with the two miners that were rescued Davey felon was 58 years old hank throne was 28 so there was this parent child thing this adult child relationship with these two it was symbiotic and i believe that the older felon actually saved the life of throne by just keeping him
1: grounded and centered Let us center this with Maxim Furek and Gene Steinberg and Tim Swartz. You're in. The guest.
6: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
13: Do
1: you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's
16: Says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. Hi, this is Jason Hansen.
17: I'm a former CIA officer and best-selling author on safety and preparedness. The fact is, things are getting downright scary for everyone who's storing their wealth in the banks. We just saw the collapse of three major banks, and I would urge you to consider protecting your wealth ASAP. If even a tiny percentage of Americans attempted to withdraw their savings, we would see a collapse of the entire banking system, sending us into a modern-day Great Depression. Fortunately, there is a way for you to avoid this. It starts with contacting Advantage Gold. If you have an IRA or 401k, Advantage Gold can help convert those paper assets into physical gold and silver. This is the process that I recommend everybody use as a hedge against rapid inflation and to protect your retirement wealth from the banks. Take control of your financial safety today. Call 800-900-8000 to get your free gold investment kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the
0: Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: We continue with the reports of a mining disaster in 1963 in Pennsylvania that was thrown off the press. Later that year, because that's when JFK was assassinated. I have only a very brief story about JFK, by the way. I think anyone alive in those days remembers what they were doing. I took my bicycle to the post office to get some mail. I had a post office box for my little UFO magazine, which, Uh. of course, 18 years old at the time. And I just noticed everybody looking glum. But I didn't watch any TV during the day. I was busy doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so my dad comes home from work and he says, did you hear that the president has been shot? And that's the first I heard of it. And then, I don't know, a couple of years later, a year or two later, we went to see Mark Lane, a former New York State Assemblyman, later author of Rush to Judgment. And he spent a couple of hours in a lecture explaining why the Warren Commission and its theory Of a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, must be false. Yep. Yep. But that's another show
2: and another uh, juicy conspiracy. I mean, we still don't know at this point, you know. So um, there's plenty, plenty of uh, conjecture, plenty of books and narratives about that, and uh, you know. But all we do know about that is that there were a lot of players, you know, whether it was the the mafia, you know, the mob, or whatever. A lot of players involved in that. So
1: you know, we'll never know. You mentioned Richard Shaver before, who he was a friend of mine. And I think, I don't know if Tim knew him, but Tim Beckley did. And going back then, of course, Shaver and Ray Palmer were very friendly. And in, this gets to be a crazy synergy here, during the days of Amazing Stories in the 40s, a frequent letter writer to Ray Palmer was Fred Lee Christman. He was one of the figures in the Maury Island UFO hoax of
2: 1947
1: and later was mentioned in the New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison's probe into the Kennedy assassination. And the theory that maybe Crispin was one of the hobos up on the grassy knoll that may have been seen at that time. So Mm -hmm. that's a convergence. Fred Lee amazing stories. Ray Palmer, Maury Island, the Kennedy assassination. Amazing,
2: yeah. Yeah, connect the dots, yeah.
12: Back to the Shepton uh, uh, mystery. How long were these guys trapped underground?
2: Okay, so uh, they were trapped for for two weeks. Uh And um, they used an innovative rescue technique. Uh, They drilled a borehole. Uh, They were going to put these metal cages down there. They were going to put the miners in the cage one at a time and extricate them. And uh, they weren't able to do that because the mine shaft was irregular and they felt that the miners would be trapped and they would die a horrible death, you know, uh, worse than what they had now. So they were able to go and uh, drill boreholes, widen those boreholes, and then bring them up uh, wearing these uh, parachute uh, harnesses and helmets. Now, the interesting thing was that Davey Fallon, the the older guy, the 58-year-old, told Hank Throne, he said, Hank, when you get to the top, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell them what we saw down here. They're going to think we're crazy. And the first thing that Hank Throne did when he was the helicopter took him over to the Hazleton General Hospital, and they had the paparazzi. The paparazzi were out in force in 1963, just as they are in 2023. And Hank Throne started to talk about seeing the vision of Pope John the 23rd. He called him the the stranger. talked about the humanoid creatures. talked about seeing the uh, golden stairwells, and all of that. And he left it out of the bag. This was something that. Davy Fallon didn't want to talk about. Uh, so Davy Fallon wasn't looking for publicity about this. He wanted to keep it quiet. But then Hank Throne let the cat out of the bag. Associated Press had some sort of an exclusive deal with these miners. I believe it was for a year, so there was all kinds of articles, you know, from AP writers, but they talked about the paranormal aspects and the uh, visit- visitation of Pope John the Twenty Third was probably one of the most significant aspects of the Sheptah narrative.
12: Now, these guys were two weeks underground in complete darkness. Right. So how could they see these things?
2: Well, that's a good question. How could they see these things? You know, um, they were in a situation where there, there was, uh, you know, there was uh, no light, but they saw doorwell doorways, and they saw uh, the vision of Pope John the Twenty Third, who had died two months earlier. The Pope had died in June of nineteen sixty three. The Shepton Mine disaster took place in August of sixty three. So they saw all these things in the darkness after. Six days, there they were able to go and drill a borehole. They found the miners after six days. They were able to send them food and water. They were able to go and send them some medication uh, for their hands. Uh, But they still saw the Pope. And uh, Vatican scholars have said that Shepton was one of the Pope's miracles. And uh, the Pope was canonized in 2014. And... uh, Vatican academics said that Shepton was one of the miracles that he performed. So
12: both both of these guys saw the same things. It wasn't like one guy was seeing it and then describing it to the other, but both were seeing it at the same time?
2: Yeah, so what's what's interesting is that there was a guy named Ed Conrad. Ed, He called himself the Truth Dispenser. He was an old newspaper guy from Shenandoah, Pennsylvania. This is deep in the heart of coal country. And Ed befriended Davy Fallon. So with Ed Conrad being in the story, what he did was he brought the paranormal closer to the scientific. By that I mean he introduced Davy Fallon to uh, to Dr. Bruce Grayson, who was in uh, one of the he was from the University of Virginia. He was one of the experts on near-death experiences. He took him down to see Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in also in Virginia, and she had written uh, on death and dying, one of the landmark uh, studies of the 20th century, and Elizabeth Cooper Ross said that what the miners experienced there was an example of life after death, and she was referring to Pope John the 23rd. Again, the Pope had died in August of 63. No, the Pope had died in June of 63, and Shepton took place in August of 63. So this was an example of life after death. The other thing too if you're into Roman Catholic mysticism, if you believe in miracles and, and all of that, uh, all three of the miracles that the Pope allegedly performed happened after he had died. And I was at a book signing. There was a Roman Catholic nun who was there. And I said to the sister, so I said, sister, did you know that all three of the miracles of the Pope happened after he died? And she goes, well, of course. And I go, what do you mean, of course? She goes, well, he died and went to heaven where he got that power, that authority, and then he came down and he performed those miracles. So, that's the, uh, you know, that's the story. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, Vatican academics believe that. And when we talk about miracles, we're talking about something of a supernatural element, something that, you know, when they define miracles, it's something that uh, a person is, you uh, uh, a uh, holy person, you know, has uh, you know, uh, just uh, you know, has lived a holy life, and God works through those, performing miracles through them. So, you know, like like you know, we were talking about John Fogarty and the hoodoo being channeled through him. You know, it's the same similar concept. You know, uh, you know, uh, good people in some cases, you know, get that uh, that power that that affirmation from God and and they they perform miracles. So this is what we believe happened with Pope John the 23rd. In all three cases, he just stood over there in the corner with his arms folded giving these miners the message that they were going to be rescued. That they, that they were going to be safe. So he was sending them a message. He wasn't digging them out with a shovel. He wasn't giving them food or water. He was just sending a message that, they, that everything was going to be all right. So that was Pope John twenty third, and that happened in August of 1963.
1: One what can about? say to be skeptical, one can say to be skeptical, that maybe under all this stress, these people had hallucinations.
2: Yeah, and you could say that, you know, when I wrote the book, what I did was I just followed what they said. I spent I spent weeks and weeks and weeks at these different uh, newspapers looking through the microfiche, talking to people in Shepton, Oneida, uh, putting together the narrative. And not uh, saying that it was a hallucination caused by drinking sulfur water or uh, sensory deprivation. You know, I wasn't going to do to the Shepton miners what the government did to everybody since 1947 that's seen UFOs. You know, saying that they are somehow mentally unstable, that they're looking at the planet Venus, that they're seeing reflections of a light or whatever. You know, and a little bit later, uh, Gene and and Tim, I... I'm going to talk about the UFOs that I have seen. And uh, I have seen numerous flying saucers. And uh, I'm the proverbial man who knew too
1: much. We're going to learn a little too much with Maxim and Gene and Tim. (laughs) Right, you're in the
12: Paracast.
6: You are listening to GCN.
1: and further conversations with paracast guests with paracast plus you can download a very special enhanced version of the paracast also we do offer exclusive music videos and more features are coming to get more info about subscribing please visit the paracast.plus once again the paracast.plus prices are just $1. 50 a week less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
11: Extendivite is more than just a heart tonic. Most basic diseases are caused by yeast in the gut and metals in the liver, and we all have a bit of both. The garlic in Extendivite has a yeast killing effect in the gut while also helping the sulfur enzyme in the liver get rid of the metals. Extendivite just may improve your overall health. Products like Extendivite are the only way we are going to get our society healthy. And if you're waiting for the government and pharmaceutical care to solve your health problems, you're going to have a long, disappointing wait, I think. Extendivite is a complete formula for extended life in the new millennium. 80 can be the new 60. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two month supply. To get started, call 1 877 928 8822. That's 1 877 928 8822 or visit partdrop.com. Extend your life with extend.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Yes, you knew too much about flying saucers. Of course, that was the book that Gray Barker wrote in the 50s. Probably the one and only totally serious book he ever wrote, but that's another story. Maxim Furek with Gene and Tim. Let's go on with what you have to talk about, sir.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, um, my book, Coal Region Hoodoo, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit, it's my latest book. It's uh, published by uh, Beyond the Fray. And what I did was, it's a continuation of some of the themes that I discovered Uh, at the Shepton Mythology. So, I go a little bit deeper, a little bit further into that. You know, I talk about Roman Catholic mysticism, and Coleric and Hoodoo is a blend of the paranormal, the scientific, you know, the spiritual. I blend it all together. I take a look at it through a sociological lens, and I believe it's unique. I think that, that, you know, uh, as far as I know, this is the first time or one of the few times that, you know, somebody has put all those elements together in one narrative. But the book has only been out for a little over a month, and uh, we're getting some really good reviews. And I'm excited about this. Uh, You know, we have uh, a number of uh, events you know, set up for Cole region Hoodoo, uh, and I'm excited because again, there's a there's an audience out there. That, there's an audience that hungers for this kind kind of information, and I was sort of uh, caught by surprise um, with the Shepton uh, mythology, and you know, I didn't realize the uh, you know the uh, you know the I guess the fan base, you know the the people that support the this thing. But um, with Shepton, the Myth, Miracle, of Music, I had been on numerous. Podcast, And one of the um, interesting ones was Mysterious Universe from Australia, and they did a 90-minute piece on me and the Shepton book. And it was pretty interesting listening to these Australian guys with that thick Aussie accent, you know, cherry-picking through the book and talking about that. So I'm glad that, you know, the Shepton story is getting out and that people are hearing about it and uh, because it needs to be told. It just has uh, so many uh, paranormal elements to it. What about the cultural aspect of that region
12: at that time? Was was this a heavy Roman Catholic uh,
2: area? Yeah, it was. You have a whole lot. Well, first of all, it's the coal region. Mm -hmm. And this is where they had the anthracite coal. You know, the northeastern Pennsylvania uh, drove the industrial revolution, you know, through anthracite coal. So, you know, there was more coal here than any place else. I was doing a presentation at one of the libraries in wilkes on Shepton, and there was a guy there, an older guy. He had a a legal pad, and he's taking notes. And during the uh, intermission, I went over and introduced myself, and here he was a guy from Poland, and he was recruited by the coal companies to come over to, to Pennsylvania, and they were told that the streets of America were paved in gold. So that was one of the uh, reasons that he came over here, plus the freedom and the, the, the opportunity to work. Uh, the problem with that is a lot of those coal miners, a lot of them were Polish italian you know slovak uh they were the uh new immigrants coming over to the united states and uh they became indentured servants i mean they could never get out of debt you know that tennessee ernie ford song uh 16 tons what do you get another day older and deeper in debt and they paid the company store they paid them you know uh, higher prices for the stuff but they could never really get out of debt because of what they were making and, and all that so There was a lot of poverty there. There was a lot of hardship. There were breaker boys. These were young kids, uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, who who were working down there in the mines. Uh, We just had a whole lot of stuff we were dealing with. A lot of these people were Roman Catholic or Greek Catholic, and all they had was, you know, they worked, and then on the weekends they would drink, they would go to church, and uh, that was about it. I mean, they had a uh, pretty—they had a life of hardship, so— the uh, mining industry after the war started to uh, uh, dissipate, uh, and then in the fifties, a lot of they couldn't get uh, coal miners to go down there because the young kids, you know, the the children of the coal miners refused to go down there. It was just too dangerous. You know, everybody had black lung, and everybody was crippled up one way or the other. So it was just a really hard. It was arduous and that's when Mother Jones stepped in and she went down to West Virginia and organized. And those miners in West Virginia had it even worse than the miners in Pennsylvania. So Mother Jones was, you know, I know we're not, she's not the paranormal and she's not rock and roll, but she was a rock star in her own right. And what she did, you know, as far as organizing, but, but that was the landscape for Pennsylvania. And, you know, there were a lot of superstitions, you know, there are, you know, a lot of things like that. And with, Coal region hoodoo, I use the term hoodoo as uh, a term that could be both a blessing as well as a curse. And when you take a look at the miners, okay, uh, Felon and Throne were rescued. They got the blessing, and then Louis Bova got the curse. They never found him. You know, some people thought he was cannibalized. I mean, to this day, some people still think he was cannibalized. We don't know what happened to the third miner. But then with Felon and Throne had got the blessing— they also got the curse because they were celebrated as heroes. And then the people wanted to know, the townspeople from Shepton and Oneida wanted to know what happened to the third minor. And so there were these allegations of cannibalism. So they went from being heroes to being scapegoats. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people uh, thought that uh, there was cannibalism involved. The Chicago Daily News had an article about cannibalism and the Shepton Mine disaster, and they said that folklore said that the shortest guy, in cases of cannibalism, the shortest guy would always get it. And in this case, it was Louis Bova, who you know may or may not have been cannibalized. But uh, when Davy fell on her, that when he was asked that question by the Chicago Daily News, he said that only evil men would ask such a question. He goes, "We never did that. It wasn't true." But the uh, The rumors, the horrible unfounded rumors persisted in 63. And then in 1971, here's a pop song not only a pop song but a pop song about cannibalism that seems to be about Shepton and not only that but it's the most successful and popular song in northeastern Pennsylvania so those people from from Shepton are getting piled on and you know they're you know then you know the it's like karma it's really getting rubbed into their faces so you know um, you know it was just uh, you know a tragedy and um, it was amazing that they were able to actually rescue those guys after after those two weeks. Now, did the uh, two surviving miners uh,
12: ever say anything about the uh, third one, that, you know, he had been with them and then just disappeared, or did they just always say it had al- It was always just the two of them?
2: No, what happened was, and, and Tim, that's a great question, um, there was a mine cave, and what happened, it was, it was on a Tuesday in uh, August of 1963, and they sent down the buggy, they filled it up, and, you know, with coal, send it back to the top. This guy, George Walker, was the foreman up there. So George tipped it, dumped it, sent it back down so they could refill it. On the way down, that's when the mine cave came down, and like millions of tons of coal and rock and and timbers came down on these guys. They had tiny little things called monkey shafts. So Felon and Throne were able to jump into a monkey shaft and, and save their lives, and that avalanche of coal and rock came down and separated them from bova now they claimed that they spoke to louis bova the third miner a couple of times bova said that he had broken his leg and then after that they lost contact with him so again you know these allegations of cannibalism just persist they won't go away uh you know um uh, just it's just one of those things that um you know that uh I don't know it's just part of that that Shepton mythology, and it starts with cannibalism. It starts with the song "Timothy" by the Boys, and uh, and then it goes to all the uh, weird paranormal uh, uh, apparitions that they saw.
1: What is your take on it?
2: Well, after doing all the research, you know, I I, I really think that what happened was that the, uh, uh, the there was a cave in that separated the miners from Louis Volova. I don't believe that there was any cannibalism. And I think that uh, in a situation like this, and again, I wrote it from psychological terms. What would it be like to be in pure uh, darkness with no hope of being extricated?
1: We'll extricate ourselves now. More to come with Maxim, Gene, and Tim. You're in.
12: The (laughs) Paracast.
1: the Paracast.plus, to learn more about Paracast Plus. No matter where you
4: live, what you make, or who you voted for, there are some things that will impact all of us soon. Whether you're concerned about the alarming increase in man-made disasters, financial institutions collapsing, or worsening food shortages, Americans are preparing in numbers not seen since World War II. What's changed is how we prepare. And the folks at My Patriot Supply have made it easier than ever for you to have peace of mind, knowing you're ready for what's next. Go to mypatriotsupply.com and stock up on over a dozen emergency food kits. These include tasty breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, fruits, veggies, meats, and snacks, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one kit per person. As we all know, calories equals energy equals survival. My Patriot Supply food kits are in stock and shipped discreetly. We've seen too many Americans let down by institutions we used to trust. It's time to rely on ourselves. MyPatriotSupply.com MyPatriotSupply.com
9: That's 800-507-3137.
5: Are you a business owner? Are you confused by the complexity of the tax laws? We can help. I'm Dan Pilla, and I've been helping business owners solve tax problems for over 40 years. My book, The Small Business Tax Guide, shows proven ways to avoid all the common business tax problems. Don't risk your business. Go to danpilla.com to order your copy. That's danpilla.com. Order now and get a free 15-minute call directly with me, a $99 value. Go to danpillot.com. That's danpillot.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Okay, so Maxim, we're talking here about being in total darkness, almost like being in solitary confinement in prison.:
2: Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So a couple things. I talked about the symbiosis. In order to survive, I think Dave Felon was mentoring the younger Hank Throne telling him to, you know, keep your wits about you. It was maybe fifty-two degrees down there. It was cold. They would go and rub each other's back, you know, take turns doing that just to, you know, to survive. I don't think cannibalism was was in the equation because I think during times of that, I think that they were traumatized for days, you know, sucking in that coal dust, that despondency. I don't think the hunger pangs kicked in. You know, I just think that they were just so traumatized that 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 food was the last thing that they were even thinking about so i don't think that happened on, s- on numerous uh counts they were able to survive and one reason that they did this that was i believe that felon who uh he had studied he was a roman catholic but he had studied mahatma gandhi and he knew a technique to go and press your adam's apple to suppress hunger and thirst so he uh, did that and taught Hank thrown that. He also had a mantra. it was it was dig, tap, pray. And again, he was a devout Roman Catholic, but they would dig. they would they had shovels. they were trying to find a way to dig their, themselves out. They would tap, they would tap to let the uh, the rescue party wherever they were know where they were so they would just have to give them send those vibrations and then they would pray so they, they would do that dig tap pray and uh, that became the mantra that they used every now and then there would be another rush another cave-in and so the configuration of that mine shaft that might have been as big as a football field and it would change. There were places where they had to crawl on their hands and knees. There were other places where they could stand, and they could bend over, and other places where they could actually stand and walk. But it kept on changing, and they were, uh, you know, deathly afraid of these, what they called the rushes, that, that more cave would happen. Because the mine still wasn't settled, you know, it kept on changing. It was almost like a living thing, so so that was the thing. But um, Johnny Bova, who is Louis Bova's son, Johnny Believes that the possibility of his father being eaten exists. Every time he is interviewed by, you know, during these anniversary of Shepton, he tells the local uh, reporters that uh, he believes that his dad may have been cannibalized. I interviewed him and he told me the same thing. So uh, he believes that. And, uh, you know, it's too bad. It's It's too bad. It's a sad tragic situation but uh, uh, it's uh, something that happened in northeastern pennsylvania you know it's interesting because a lot of people don't know about the shepton uh, mythology and then a lot of people don't know about the shepton rescue technique that saved so many people you know uh, globally and that's the one thing that i think fascinates me probably more than anything else you know the uh, the rescue uh, technique information that that a lot of people don't know about.
12: Well, there was a situation in uh, was it Colombia, <laughs> uh, Chile, Chile, yeah, yeah where uh, uh, they used that technique to rescue the miners.
2: Exactly, and that was exactly the one. So in 2010, those 33 miners in Chile, the Chilean copper mine disaster, those 33 miners were rescued using Shepton rescue technology now again I've read uh, numerous uh, articles about uh, the Chilean copper mine disaster I saw the movie the 33 and they don't mention Shepton uh, rescue technology which uh, you know as a uh, person from from northeastern Pennsylvania sort of sort of upsets me that we never got a recognition with that but there's an interesting story about uh, the, those 33 Uh there have, been, there have been two books, books written about the uh, Chilean copper mine disaster. Uh, some of the stuff is similar to uh, Shepton in a sense. In a sense, uh, and what happened was they had some food every day. The miners, the Chilean miners, would get a ration: a little bit of tuna fish, a little thimble of milk, and a cracker or two. So that was what they would get for the whole day. Now the people in charge of these 33 realized that at a certain point they were going to run out of food. And this is in the books written about the mine disaster in Chile. They were running out of food. They realized that at some point they were going to run out of food. And the possibility of cannibalism reared its ugly head. And they said all the guys that were down there, and the 33, were from Chile, with the exception of one guy that was from Uruguay. And according to the book, the narrative in the book, they said that, well, if anybody's going to get it, it'll be the guy from Uruguay. Hmm. So that was the, the, <laughs> the dark humor there. Um, you know, stories of cannibalism in mining disasters, stories of cannibalism anywhere. You know, it's, it's uh, every – uh, country, every culture has, uh, you know, stories about cannibalism, whether it's the Native Americans saying, or, you know, or African tribes saying that by uh, eating human flesh, you'll get the, the strength and the valor and the courage of your enemy, you know, whether it's that or, you know, uh, whatever the, uh, the idea behind it, you know, the uh, cannibalism is, is practiced in, in uh, you know, so many cultures uh, throughout the world. Uh, so, um, you know, it's uh, you know, uh, ugly, it's something that we don't like to consider and talk about, but it became front and center with the Shepton mining disaster. And again, something that I said just uh, doesn't seem to want to go away. Well, and you uh, write quite a bit about
12: cannibalism uh, in your book. I mean, it's, it's one of those subjects that fascinates people, yet at the same time repels
2: them. Exactly. It's almost like uh, Jung's uh, shadow self, you know, that part of ourself that we don't want the world to know about, you know, that evil uh, part that, you know, you have your, you know, your, uh, your, Public self, and then you have your private self, and, you, and then you have that intimate personal self that has that shadow person, you know, the the person that thinks and does things that may go against the norms of society, you know. So, uh, I, in my new book, Core Region Who Do I talk about, you know, what causes fear? I talk about fear in terms of Jung and Freud, and I go deep with this. I mean, you know, why do people uh, watch horror movies? And and uh, in the the book, and uh, and I hope we could switch between Shepton and Co-Region Hoodoo, but in Co-Region Hoodoo, um, I, I talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren, and I know uh, some people are fans and some people aren't, uh, you know, and maybe that's just like Richard Sharp Shaver and Ray Palmer and a lot of other people, but um, or John Keel and whoever, but with um, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who I had a chance to interview and be, I became friends with them, you know, over the years, um, they... Have the Conjuring franchise? The Conjuring franchise was put together based on their exploits and their their uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, houses that they had that they investigated, and there had been seven motion pictures. You know, The Conjuring, Conjuring Two, Annabelle. You know, The Devil Made Me Do It. You know, all these things. Seven motion pictures, two billion dollars worldwide. The second most successful horror franchise after Godzilla. So this is Hollywood jumping all over Ed and Lorraine Warren, whether it's Amityville or whether it's the Schmurl Haunting up in northeastern Pennsylvania that I have a chapter on that in Co-Region Who But um, just uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, sort of own a part of this, you know, that uh, paranormal realm.
1: We'll have more with Maxim, Jean, and Tim. You're in.
2: For the podcast. Yeah.
6: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
19: G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Young Jevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home.
8: USA News Update. President Biden says talks about the debt ceiling are ongoing. Biden spoke briefly with reporters before boarding Air Force One after addressing Howard University's commencement. He added there are real discussions about a debt ceiling deal, but we're not there yet. Former President Trump canceled an outdoor rally in Iowa Saturday due to stormy weather. Both he and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had scheduled separate events in the Hawkeye State. DeSantis spoke earlier at a GOP fundraiser in Cedar Rapids. He is reportedly set to officially enter the presidential race. At least one person is dead and 11 others injured after a tornado in southern Texas. The twister slammed the community of Laguna Heights early Saturday morning. This is Karen Sloan, USA News.
0: All right, crew, let's get her dug.
10: Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember?
0: No matter how
17: large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban and water and sewer lines so before you do this or this make sure you do this for digging projects big or small make the call to 811 brought to you by common ground alliance
7: get healthy not high with 100 percent pure cbd powerful natural pain relief from veterans vitality gcn listeners have you ever thought about how cbd may help you
19: You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan.
1: Point of reference for longtime Paracast listeners Lorraine Warren was a guest on our show on April 8th, 2007. Okay? In 2013, by the way, we had Richard Toronto to talk oh, nice. about Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver and my. First wife, Geneva, who was also a friend of Shavers, was a guest on that particular show. So a lot of this stuff we've covered, but not the book that you have here about the coal region hoodoo and all the stuff that went around it. Are you familiar with a guy named Stan Gordon? He's a good friend of mine, and Stan is in my book, and
2: Stan is one of the... uh, experts he's from western pennsylvania but he's one of the experts on bigfoot ufos and the kecksburg ufo uh crash of 1965 so i've been able to keep in touch with stan over the years Uh, we hung out uh, last year at the kecksburg ufo festival i'm going to be sharing the uh, stage with stan and a number of other folks on september the 20th in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, at the Bigfoot and Supernatural Expo. Bigfoot and Supernatural Expo. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, Stan is sort of the uh, the guru. He sort of has taken the paranormal into a little bit closer to the scientific because he has all these reports of Bigfoot sightings, and a lot of these Bigfoot sightings are accompanied by UFO sightings. So it's just amazing. But Stan has been able to document this you know what they see when they see it uh you know just amazing stuff and he's uh, you know i have his book right here um silent invasion the pennsylvania ufo bigfoot case book by stan gordon so um, yeah it's, it's a good book it has a lot of information on it
1: one of the interesting things that stan does is kind of creates a unified field theory and steve mara Kind of was referring to that on last week's episode. He's the director and publisher of Phenomena magazine in the UK. And the issue here with Stan is that it sounds like a unified field theory where UFOs and Bigfoot have a similar basic cause. What do you think?
2: That's a good question. And when I first heard that, I thought, this is crazy. This is like Looney Tunes. But the more I researched it, the more it seems to be happening. And again, as what do we call ourselves, you know, researchers, academics, as students of the paranormal, we know we're trying to find answers. And there seems to be something there. The closest answer that I could find would be uh, Albert Einstein's uh, wormhole theory. And Einstein said way back in, I guess it was the 30s, that there were bridges or wormholes that connected Time continuums, and he claimed that people from various dimensions could go from point A to point B through these these wormholes. This inner dimensional theory seems to be the one that is resonating with so many people. I keep, I see it, you know, uh, all of the uh, leading researchers, you know, talk about that. So that seems to be the one thing that's that uh, that is, uh, you know, taking hold. Uh, when they talk about Bigfoot, they talk about Bigfoot either gliding or loping, they talk about by location where you see this, this uh, creature in front of you, then all of a sudden it's behind you, you know, that it shape shifts from one dimension to the other. The interesting thing, too, thousands of people seeing the same thing, and six to eight to ten foot hairy ape eyes that don't reflect light, but they emit light. You know, something that glides, that uh, uh, may be accompanied by UFOs or other uh, paranormal phenomenon that may happen to the witnesses of these events. So what does it mean? I don't know. You know, um, uh, I spoke with Eric Altman. He's the president of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Association. And, uh, you know, we believe that after California and Washington State. And uh, Arizona is not in this mix, but after those two states, Pennsylvania is uh, allegedly number three as far as Bigfoot uh, sightings and also UFO sightings. But one reason for that is that Bigfoot typically hangs out in in woods and forest, like like the black bears do, and not in the deserts or the mountains of Arizona. So, I mean, you know, from what we know about Bigfoot, there's certain habitats that Bigfoot uh, covers Um I had uh, attended the uh, Bigfoot conference in Ocala, Florida uh, last month, and uh, there were people that talked about that, you know, anthropologists that talked about it from a scientific standpoint. So pretty interesting. You know, we're still waiting to get more proof other than, you know, I mean, we've, we have uh, footprints, you know, we have plaster cast of footprints, and we have the sightings, but it's an interesting thing, Gene. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, uh, why that connection between Bigfoot and UFOs? And uh, I don't no,
12: know. It's, it's not just Bigfoot. I mean, Pennsylvania seems to be almost like uh, 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 Disneyland for all kinds of crypt. Cryptid creatures. I mean, you've got you know the uh, uh, w- winged weirdos and uh, big cats and uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. like the devil monkeys. Yeah. All kinds of things.
2: Yeah, yeah. I have uh, a chapter that, um, again, just to give an overview of Col Region Hoodoo. Coleridge Region Hoodoo. Is an extension of the Shepton mythology. You know, I found an audience, I found people that were interested in this topic, so I decided to go a little bit deeper and wider and probe more. So, with uh, the Coal Region Who Do, I take a look at, you know, uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I look at some of the motion pictures like Night of the Living Dead like the Blob and like the Philadelphia Experiment, uh, because those were important to the Commonwealth, and those are important today. Uh, 2023 is the 80-year ad- uh, anniversary of the, the uh, Philadelphia Experiment, and that was the experiment where allegedly a destroyer, the Eldridge, was uh, trans- uh, teleported from Philadelphia to Norfolk and back. And then, of course, there was the sci-fi movie, that took the story into another realm, but I was able to talk to people like Fred Tracy, and Fred was up in Derry, New Hampshire. I went up there. Remember, that was the uh, Barney and Betty Hill territory from what was in nineteen sixty two. I guess the uh, uh, they were one of the first uh, uh, abductees, you know, on, on record. But Fred was up there in Derry, New Hampshire, and I was able to get information on the on the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, the other one was the Blob. And that was based on something came down, some kind of a meteorite or something, and there was some kind of gooey substance that the police officers found. And there were uh, some movie producers in the Philadelphia area that heard about it and uh, wrote the movie, wrote the script that Steve launched Steve McQueen as you
1: know the, as a teen idol. Do but you remember? Uh, speaking of music, do you remember the theme song for the Blob? Um, give me a clue. Beware of the blob! It creeps, it leaps, no, and you, lie- you never heard it, the song. It the creeps. blob. So, no, I've,
2: I've, heard, I've heard it, but I don't like—I don't recall the song.
9: <laughs>
2: and usually, I'm a guy that would re- remember stuff like that. So,
1: but um, the name of the group that had the hit record was the Five Blobs. Okay. <laughs> this is what goes back 1958. Yep. Beware of the blob! It creeps and leaps and glides and slides. Across the floor, right through the door, and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful, of the blob. And you know who one of the writers of that song was? No. Okay. Bert Bacharach. Oh, wow. Okay. Obviously, one of his early songs. (laughs) (sighs) You know, I
2: read his autobiography, and I don't recall that. I don't know if that was in there. But, you know, maybe that's like uh, Rupert Holmes and Timothy. I mean, uh, you know, although I think Rupert Holmes would be, is probably pleased with Timothy and what it did for his career. It's pretty much launched his his career, you know, the Pina Colonna man, so. Um, But part of Cole Region who do we have some popular culture, and uh, I talk about Night of the Living Dead, that was released in 1968 and they shot that in Evans City, uh, Pennsylvania that's just north of Pittsburgh. So last year on our road trip from Kecksburg, you know, hanging out with Stan Gordon, we went up to uh, Evans City and the
1: mayor of Evan City. We'll continue with that trip, that voyage with Maxim, Gene and Tim, you're in. The Paracast.
0: Hi, this is Jason Hansen.
17: I'm a former CIA officer and best-selling author on safety and preparedness. The fact is, things are getting downright scary for everyone who's storing their wealth in the banks. We just saw the collapse of three major banks, and I would urge you to consider protecting your wealth ASAP. If even a tiny percentage of Americans attempt to withdraw their savings, we would see a collapse of the entire banking system, sending us into a modern-day Great Depression. Fortunately, there is a way for you to avoid this. It starts with contacting Advantage Gold. If you have an IRA or 401k, Advantage Gold can help convert those paper assets into physical gold and silver. This is the process that I recommend everybody use as a hedge against rapid inflation and to protect your retirement wealth from the banks. Take control of your financial safety today. Call 800-900-8000 to get your free gold investment kit from Advantage Gold. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000.
20: That's 818-984-6100. ShopSuperT.com. Advertising is simple. It starts with someone who has a need.
21: Mom! And then gets more specific. Mom, I want pizza. Then we add urgency.
4: I want pizza tonight.
21: Before you know it, your GCN advertising message is reaching millions of listeners. Listeners who are definitely in need. We- You see? Advertising on GCN is simple. Your message meets their need, and the result means new business for you. Tell us about your business, then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message to feed those who have an urgent need. We want pizza tonight! GCN has the most affordable national radio advertising rates, period. And millions of people listen to GCN radio programs on over 1,000 AM and FM and XM stations and streaming audio live. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email, advertise at GCNlive.com.
17: This is
8: Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the
10: Paracast.
1: After this, by the way, Maxim, I want to go back to the Philadelphia Experiment, because I'll tell you a few stories about that, like, my Encounters with Charles Berlitz, who wrote the book about okay. the Philadelphia yep. Experiment. Yep. Fascinating stuff. Let's go on to your little journey here with Stan Gordon.
2: Yeah, so after uh, hanging out with Stan at the Kexburg UFO Festival, uh, we went up to uh, Monroeville to the Night of the Living Dead Mall. And, uh, you know, they had have, uh, have a museum there. And then we went up to Evan City. So we, that's where they filmed Night of the Living Dead. It was released in 1968. And in my book, I take a look at this. I take a sociological look at this zombie movie. You know, it was George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. But I contend that it wasn't so much about zombies. It was about the state of America in 1968. Remember, this was the year that we had the Tet Offensive, the year that North Korea captured the Pueblo. This is when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. When we had the Palm uh, Sunday riots, a 100 cities were burned, were torched, you know, after the assassination of of Martin Luther King Jr. So, just all kinds of horrible things were happening in the U.S. of A. in 1968. And Night of the Living Dead represented that, that chaotic, uncertain time, Um, again, Look at 1968 and look at and 2003. I mean, you know, we have uh, other issues, similar issues. You know, we're still dealing with all with the chaos, the turmoil, you know, the uncertainty. Uh, things don't change. Uh, I think the only thing that uh, does change, and and I uh, when whenever I do any of these presentations, I tell people just just find your center. You know find your strength and deal with it you know put uh tools in your toolkit to deal when, with the stress that comes and with the uncertainty you know we can't uh ch- change what's happening out in the in the in the in the l- large in the world but we could change the way we look at it and um uh, and i'm a big proponent of uh you know self-actualization and, and self-empowerment and all that you know i i believe in meditating why well, i meditate i have a practice and uh and I, I believe that everybody should do that. So anyway, 1968, Night of the Living Dead, and uh, I kick off Co-Region Hoodoo with a chapter on Night of the Living Dead, and it sort of sits the stage for, you know, that feeling uh, horror, you know, Jack the Ripper, you know, blood, horror movies and all that. Why do we go down those dark alleyways? What is it about human beings that you know and Tim was asking that I mean you know that that we were sort of drawn to the maybe the the aspect of cannibalism, but yet we were repulsed by it so it's that yin yang thing you know I mean uh, you know human beings are are, are, are are a fickle, funny lot but um um
12: Well, I mean, considering when Night of the Living Dead was made, and and it was a very inexpensive film, uh, uh, shot, I think, originally on 16 millimeter. I mean, it was
2: very groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking. And when you watch it today, I mean, watch the first 15 minutes of it. I mean, you know, the the mood, the black and white, the car going up and down, going to the cemetery. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, Romero pulled it off. I mean, the camera shots are great. And then Johnny and his sister, Barbara, and then Johnny says, they're coming to get you, Barbara. (laughs) And then the zombie comes. I mean, it was a pretty classic uh, movie. I mean, they got it right. And, uh, you know, yeah, and they did it on the cheap, but it made all kinds of money and it has all kinds of awards. And it's still it's uh, listed as one of the uh, one of the best, uh, you know, uh, most significant movies of all time. So pretty amazing and then it kicked off the whole genre of zombie movies and The Walking Dead and, and all of that. I mean, and, and ask yourself, why? What draws people to watch uh, a series about, about uh, zombies? You know about flesh-eating zombies. I mean, why would we do that? And uh, and again, uh, Tim, you hit it on the head. You know, we're drawn to things like that. We're repulsed, but we're drawn to it. So it's like, you know. But you watch it, and you're safe in your living room. You know that they're not going to get you. So you could go and watch it vicariously, and know that they're not going to, you know, eat your flesh. So. That's one one reason why we, uh, I think we, we we're attracted to horror movies. You know, we, we there's a certain uh, a feeling of safety, you know, in watching them. Uh, and I I agree with that that philosophy that premise, uh, with the exception of the Saw movies. I mean, man, I just don't like that uh, those Saw movies. I mean, they're just too graphic. I mean, just to uh, don't like somebody taking out my eyeball or. You know whatever else they're doing. I mean, uh, those saw movies are just—I uh, don't know if they're groundbreaking or what—but they're, uh, you know, uh, they're tough to watch.
12: So now, Gene was wanting to know more about the uh, Philadelphia experience based on uh, some uh, experiences that that he had. But uh, the uh, the section in your book about it—I mean, that's uh, there was information in there with, uh, with the guy that you interviewed that uh, I don't think I'd ever run across before.
2: Yeah, this is pretty interesting. A lot of the coal region hoodoo is personal, and by that, you know, I had a chance to interview Ed and Lorraine Warren um, in was it, 1988, I believe, when they were on a 15-city tour of the book that they wrote, they co-wrote called The Haunted, you know, but the Shmuro Haunting. So I knew them. I was a patient of Dr. Frederick Santee. He was the white witch. He was the high priest for the Coven of the Kata. And, uh, That that his coven was uh, was uh, put together was ordained by uh, Sybil Shepherd or Sybil right Sybil Shepherd Sybil yeah (laughs) which Sybil Lake Lake Sybil Lake and um, uh, but with um, the Philadelphia experiment my cousin Jim Furick was a medic, and he was living up in Derry, New Hampshire, and he met this guy, Fred Tracy, you know, through the VA, and he told me about Fred, and he said that when, and Jim knew that I had an interest in the paranormal, and he said that Fred was involved in the Philadelphia experiment, so uh, I called him up and talked to him a couple times, and then I drove up to Derry new hampshire and interviewed him and the story was fred tracy was served aboard the antietam it was an aircraft carrier and they did a similar experiment with his aircraft carrier uh they there was a a procedure called degaussing and during world war ii there were these uh, german uh bombs that were at the bottom of the ocean and when the uh Ships, American and English ships, would go over that. The magnetic current from the ship would lock in with the with the bomb at the bottom, and exp- the bomb would explode. So the uh, Great Britain f- figured out a way to degauss, and Gauss was the level of magnetism that the ship would emit. They found a way to degauss these ships, so they would wrap coils and then sort of electrify the ships. And it would make them invisible to these German bombs. So as the Philadelphia experiment mythology goes, you know, uh, this was a a top secret experiment that went awry. And when the ship uh, was was teleported to Norfolk, when on the way back, men were fused into the bulkheads, men died, men went insane, government cover-up and all this stuff. Fred Tracy, my contact from from New Hampshire, he was aboard the Antietam, and he said that the men experienced all kinds of bizarre things, hair loss, and almost like a radiation sickness. So there was they had uh, effects of that. He said that uh, uh, Admiral Forrestal came aboard the Antietam and admitted uh, and gave them information about the Philadelphia experiment, and that took place. I believe it was in forty one or forty three and uh, said that this, that it actually happened, and Fred Tracy uh, uh, told me about that. So there were several things that Fred Tracy was able to go and, uh, and uh, you know, elaborate on, you know, that added to the uh, Philadelphia experiment. Um, I was able to talk to, uh, let's say I was able to track down William Moore, uh, Stanton Friedman, I'm trying to think some of the people that, um, I got a, a, a letter from the uh, United States uh, uh, military, the uh, uh, archives department, claiming that the Philadelphia Experiment was just a, a hoax, you know, a practical joke that went awry, and uh, that was their, ex- uh, their uh, excuse, but I still have that. And as a former, former Navy guy, you know, Vietnam-era Navy guy, you know, I really uh, followed uh, the Philadelphia Experiment with a passion.
1: Now, I wanted to tell you a few things that I had going here. Of course, I knew Gray Barker, who was one of the people oh. who followed the Philadelphia experiment, and he reprinted the annotated edition of The okay. Case for the UFO by M.K. Jessup. That's the one where Carl Allen or Carlos Allende,
2: yes, from New under different
1: names, and what you can tell yep. me about that guy, under different names, inserted all these crazy comments, and then... The US Navy printed a special spiral bound hey, yeah. edition of the book, which existed, by the way, because I had a copy that Gray Barker had published, and that copy I loaned to Charles Berlitz before he wrote his book, The Philadelphia Experiment. More to come with Maxim, Gene, and, and Tim. You're in
12: The Paragast.
0: Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit Rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S.com.
3: If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And
1: now, here's Jane Steinberg. Let's talk about Carlos Sayende or Carl Allen. Maxim, what do we know about him?
2: Yeah, strange character. You know, uh, he inserted himself into the Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, he was from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Uh, He was described as being a gypsy, lived on the farm. And what he did was he uh, had all these annotations in the book that Jessup wrote. So he sent it to Jessup, and then, like you said, the military, the Navy, got uh, a hold of it. Allende, Carlos Allende, seemed to know something about propulsion systems, about uh, Einstein's uh, unification theory. He was warning Jessup to stay away from this, that it could be dangerous. So that's what uh, he was saying. Towards the end, Jessup thought that he had found some answers. He was going to tell his friend about this. He he contacted him. He was going to tell him about it the next day. And uh, what happened the next day was that in Miami, Florida, at a park, they found uh, Dr. Jessup in his car. It looked like he had committed suicide. There was a, uh, uh, a hose going from ex- his exhaust into the car. It looked like that. It looked like he had committed suicide. Other people feel that uh, he might have been murdered because he knew too much. That he was getting too close, you know, to to a secret. You know, we'll never know. But we do know that he was looking forward to getting t- together with his friend on the day that he actually killed himself. So, uh, to me, I think that his his death is uh, problematic. And again, we won't know, you know, uh, a lot of times with, uh, you know, some of these secret government agencies that we may not even know about. And I don't even mean the CIA, but some of these agencies, they will find ways to discredit you if you come too close or even take you out. I mean, I mean, they could do some radical things. And throughout history, we've seen things
1: like that. I want to bring up something here. Curious. Who was the friend that MK Jessup was trying to contact?
2: Yeah, and that was the guy that he was going to talk to just before um, his suicide. And it was uh, his friend was uh, Dr. J. Manson Valentine. And uh, okay. that was April 19th of 1959. So Jessup contacted Valentine. He said he made a breakthrough regarding the Philadelphia Experiment. So they agreed to meet the next day. So that was going to be April the 20th. And on April 20th, uh, they found Jessup in a Florida park. He had a 58 Chevy station wagon, and uh, the engine was still running. There was a hose pipe attached to the exhaust. It was fed through the driver's side window, and all evidence indicated that Jessup had taken his own life. So we don't know, you know, don't know what happened, and we will never know. So there's just the conjecture, and that's how I ended the um chapter on the Philadelphia experiment and there's a final paragraph if I could let me just read that this is in the uh, Philadelphia experiment sure in Co region Hoodoo. But Moore's conclusion leaves much to be desired. After over 75 years, the Philadelphia Experiment remains one of the most obscure wartime mysteries and an anomaly that simply refuses to go away. And again, this is the 80-year anniversary of that. And although Jessup's death was considered an apparent suicide, some believe that he had been murdered for what he knew about UFOs, anti-gravity propulsion, and the Philadelphia Experiment. So, we don't know. And William Moore... It was the co-author of the Philadelphia Experiment, he thought that the Navy successfully made the uh, Eldridge invisible, but then teleported it over those 200 miles, killing two men in the process. So that was, you know, what he
1: said. William Moore is an interesting case. Now, going back to my encounters with his co-author, Charles Berlitz, Burlitz had written a book about the Bermuda Triangle. Right. I was working with a small newsstand Paranormal Magazine, Beyond Reality, with a guy named Harry Belil. And he did one of these local cable access TV shows. But Harry, of course, with his deep New York accent, was not the greatest TV person because I had a broadcast background. I hosted the show. Burles was on one of the episodes and he announced that he was looking for the annotated edition. So on the show, I said, I have a copy. I think he knew that, but he wanted to try to be mysterious. He was a guy with a twinkle in his eye, Burlitz, uh-huh. saying, I am honest as a day is long, with the twinkle in his eyes. And I knew then I would never buy a used car from this guy. But he was fun, and I got free lunches and a credit in the book about the Philadelphia experiment. Okay, so Burlitz and Moore teamed up again for the first book on Roswell with a lot of research from Stanton Friedman, And Friedman claimed he did a lot of the work, but he never got more than a credit. I hope he got some of the money from that Mm -hmm. book. Moore Mm -hmm. later was one of those responsible for release of the MJ-12 documents.
3: MJ-12,
2: and that brought that up, yeah.
1: Okay, so we can talk about that, too. Now, later on at a MUFON meeting, I think in 1989, Moore confessed he had done some disinformation for the Air Force. It is pretty obvious to those who research it, the MJ-12 documents were phony. Right. doesn't mean there may have not been a real agency on which it was based, but it was a phony. Moore never lived it down, and he is blamed by many to be at least one of those responsible for MJ-12, possibly instigating it. Long story. And that goes back again to the Philadelphia experiment. And one more thing. One of the people who was a friend of Jessup, who talked about his death a number of times, was Ivan T. Sanderson, yeah, a zoologist okay. involved in yep. paranormal yep. research.
2: Yep, yeah, that MG, uh, MJ12. That was who? Was the other guy was Jamie.
1: Was it Segura? Uh, Jamie Chandra. Ja- Jamie. Or Chandra. Chandra, depending on how you want to list it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, where William uh, Moore comes in. But anyway, the Philadelphia Experiment. I think it's going to get a lot of attention this year, you know, when people revisit it. And, uh, you know, just pretty amazing stuff, what, what, what happened. Again, the motion picture uh, is not true to the narrative. It just goes into another another sci-fi uh, you know, direction. But interesting uh, topic nonetheless.
1: So It was kind of a B movie, really. It wasn't yeah. a really high-caliber A-list movie. It was a B movie, not much mm-hmm. more than a TV movie. But there was a sequel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I saw the sequel.
2: So I was saying early on that I have seen flying saucers.
12: Yeah, let's hear let's hear about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, back during the Vietnam War, I was uh, I was in the Navy. I was uh, served aboard the U.S.S. Constellation. It was an aircraft carrier, CVa sixty four. It was an attack carrier, and we'd go over there into the Gulf of Tonkin, and we would do our alpha strikes. Uh, again, I was a radar man, and Me and my shipmates, you know, in CIC, Combat Information Center, you know, you've seen these in all the war movies with the status board and all that. Uh, That's where we were. But we would see bogeys. And these were solid, tangible contacts. They were faster than anything that we had or the Soviet Union at the time had. And they would make sharp turns and everything. We had a logbook. We would go and log in their UFOs. So we would put these UFO sightings there. Keep in mind that most of us guys were 20 or younger. We were just like little babies fighting this war. We were told to keep our mouths shut about what we saw. You know, not don't talk about the UFOs. So this was back in, in the 60s. And a lot of us saw them. And I remember I would go through these logbooks and see all these UFO sightings. And then the next day, those logbooks would disappear and there would be a new one. So that was back, say, 1968. Flash forward to maybe three years ago. And what's changed? Well, the Pentagon has a group, of task force now called the uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. And they're saying, claiming that 3% of the things that Navy pilots see, they can identify. Out of those 3% of the things they can identify, they're claiming that they're either, they either belong to us, or maybe Russia, China, or Iran,
1: or maybe they're extraterrestrial. Now, there's one interesting we know thing she- about how that works. And that is the Pentagon, and this, by the way, the group is now called AARO, you know, which sounds to me like APRO, of UFO organization of the 50s and 60s. But one thing they always say, yes, we have objects that are not identified, but there is no evidence they're extraterrestrial or have any kind of off-world or advanced technology component. But, of course, that's what they've been saying since the 1940s. So we're we'll yeah, go with that. Maxim yes. Furek is joining us with Tim Swartstein Steinberg. You're in
22: The Paracast.
1: Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
9: my name is Richard
8: Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast.
1: But Maxim, of course, is telling us about his sightings and dovetailing it to what the current government UFO investigation is about. Go ahead.
2: Yes. So the Pentagon is admitting that we're saying things and, and they're asking pilots to come forward to report these things. Now, in the past, in the recent past, if you would come forward, a lot of times there would be there would be this castigation, you know, they would view you in a negative light, that maybe you're uh, emotional or you're needy, you're looking for attention, you're mentally imbalanced, whatever. I mean, they would find a way to shut you down and be disrespectful. So, a lot of people did not come forward, you know, telling about things that they saw, these anomalies that they saw in the night. Now, at least, there seems to be maybe a platform or maybe a climate where people, you know, um, will be a little bit more candid about what they, what they see. So that's the one thing. So the government's stance seems to have changed. The, the name uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena has changed. The shapes continue to be the TikToks and the uh, cigar shapes. And we're, you know, we're seeing the the orbs. And there's been some interesting videos of these orbs over the Middle East that just maneuver and zigzag, and they're just like back in the '60s. They go faster than anything we have. Whatever it is, whatever the final uh, verdict is, I mean, at this point, I don't think we have, you know, the intel to determine what it is. Uh, you know, I don't think it's our, our uh, stealth technology, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if we're capable of keeping that, our stealth technology under wraps, but I don't think it's that. I think it's something else. Now, is it interplanetary uh, in nature, or is it interdimensional? And, you know, you need to sort of take a look at that. Maybe Einstein was right about that wormhole theory. Maybe, Maybe we're being visited, but if we are for what purpose and to what end, you know, and if we are being visited, we have been visited, you know, for, for years, you know, for decades. And what exactly is the purpose of that? I mean, you know, I mean, why not make contact? I mean, we're ready for that. You know, I mean, a lot of us would love to have that experience. So, so a lot of this is just, you know, unknown and we're, we're looking for answers. And, you know, I do this as a student of the paranormal. I do this as an academic looking for answers And um, when I was writing the Shepton book, I wanted to call it the Shepton Convergence, because there was a convergence of themes, you know, the vision of the Pope who had died, the uh, out-of-body experiences, the near-death experiences, the, uh, you know, the uh, the stairwells with their ancestors sitting there, all that. But um, uh, I lost my train of thought. Give me a a kick in the the head or… well, you were, you were talking about
12: uh, uh, Shepton and the uh, connections with uh, the uh, UFOs and the uh, sightings in the mines. That's,
2: uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so what has changed is, you know, the, I think the government stance, some of the shapes, the name, you know, the climate. So that's all changed. But with my Shepton book, I wanted to call it the Shepton Convergence because all these different themes. And I, I was thinking don't do that because you know you don't need to reinvent the wheel and you don't need to muddy the waters by having additional uh, verbiage or terminology. You know J. Allen Hynek talked about levels of strangeness. You know if you see a light in the sky, it may be uh, low strangeness. If you see that light, That orb that hovers over a car and the engine cuts out, you know, it may be uh, an indication of high strangeness. So my uh, terminology of uh, convergence, I just decided to not even use that anymore because Hynek has already given us that definition. And that's what we're looking at. We have people like Albert Einstein, who's given us a theory, the wormhole theory, that I think a lot of us are looking at. Uh, Hynek, who's given us the close encounters uh, categories of uh, first, second, and third. You know, third being an actual uh, uh, interaction with with uh, uh, aliens, with human, with alien humanoids. So we have people like Hynek and uh, Einstein and uh, Carl Sagan. Uh, you know, who have, have are helping with us with the terminology so that at least we can take these themes and put it someplace and then, you know, collect that data. Maybe like Stan Gordon's doing with his Bigfoot and UFO sightings, you know. So again, you know, we're collecting data and hoping that at some point we're going to be able to go and, you know, identify what this is that we've collected. So, you know, I think there's just a lot of us that are searching, you know, we're, we're, we're searchers. Well, just like uh,
12: the Bigfoot and other uh, weird things in Pennsylvania, uh, UFOs have played a uh, really a predominant role in uh, the mysteries of that state.
2: Yeah, and again, we think that Pennsylvania is maybe number three in UFO sightings. I wanted Coal Region Hoodoo to capture all of that stuff, and it's it's certainly it's about the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but a lot of other states can relate to this and uh you know with whether it's bigfoot's bigfoot or ufos or the other uh cryptids the other anomalies so you know just some interesting stories the uh the one story about dr frederick santee you know i had got a lot of response from from people that are wiccan uh, practitioners uh, and uh you know people that are pagans so it's just uh, amazing that that was reson- that resonated. And they thanked me for being respectful of their craft, you know, that it wasn't, you know, a lot of uh, early Christians claimed that, you know, the that these people were pagans, that they were uh, involved with satanic rites and all that. And uh, certainly, um, that in, in a lot of cases, that is not true, and that's not what Dr. Santee's covet was all about. And Dr. Santee, uh, the high priest, said that you could you could either use the right pathway or the left pathway and if you use the the right pathway it's the pathway for good uh, good deeds and good intentions it's for it's for helping and healing but if you use the left pathway it's to uh for casting spells and curses and i believe that all religions and i don't care what they are, i think all religions can be used for both good or bad you know you could use it for helping, or you could use it for uh, hurting people, putting on curses. It's a type of karma, you know, that uh, spiritual cause and effect, where, you know, uh, you know, good causes will have a good effect. A, a bad cause will bring a, uh, a bad effect. For example, having a uh, a future where the person suffers. So I believe in that karma. Dr. Santee talked about if you do use your uh, you know, your powers, your innate powers for evil, that it's going to come back on you tenfold. And uh, several witches that I talked to said that, well, it's actually more like th- like threefold, you know, but it doesn't matter, I mean, what the number is, you know, and we know this. I mean, you know, you do goodness, and it's going to come back on you. And, you know, you do, you know, harm to somebody, you know, you do things, of uh, you know, for evil, it's going to come back on you. So it's all about karma, it's about your, your intentions, and, um, you know and uh, and that's what the hoodoo is that's what the purpose of the hoodoo the hoodoo could be either for helping or for healing and people that get the hoodoo either get the blessing or they get the curse so that's what
1: the uh hoodoo means blessings curses whatever maxim Jean and tim you're in the pentecost
6: thank you for listening to gcn Visit GCNlive.com today.
22: I had no idea it would destroy my life, but before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call.
8: USA News Update. President Biden says negotiations to raise the debt ceiling are moving along, telling reporters there are real discussions about a deal But we're not there yet. While former President Trump canceled his rally yesterday in Iowa for possible tornadoes, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held his.
18: I'd shut down the border immediately. Why are we letting this happen to our country?
8: The governor of North Carolina formally rejecting a Republican-backed abortion bill. Hundreds of abortion rights activists applauded in Raleigh Saturday as Democratic Governor Roy Cooper placed his veto stamp on the legislation known as Senate Bill 20. New York City launching an asylum seeker arrival center at a hotel in midtown Manhattan. That hotel had been closed for three years due to the pandemic. Corey Myers, USA News.
11: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard
1: of paranormal radio. We are having a lot of fun here with our guest this week, okay? And he's the author of Coal Region Hoodoo, among other books, Paranormal Tales from Inside the Pit. Maxim Furek has joined us. When you say The Pit, I'm thinking of The Pit and the Pendulum, a movie yeah. with Vincent Price.
2: Yeah. yeah, I like Vincent Price, yeah. And
1: of course, the, so, last uh, thing, the last thing we probably heard of Vincent Price was uh, in the song Thriller, really, where he laughs. He laughed, yeah. That yeah. famous laugh. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, I like Vincent Price. I liked uh, Roger Corman. I liked what they did with Edgar Allan Poe stories and what's interesting uh talking about horror movies um i think it was 1960 fall of the house of usher came out and that became a mainstream movie i mean america went out to see that movie this horror movie and so uh roger corman realized that he was onto something so he signed up vincent price and they did all of them you know mask of the red death what a wonderful narrative that may be a metaphor. I mean, you could look at it as a metaphor for AIDS. You know, they hid themselves in the castle to stay away from this disease, you know, the plague. But, I mean, some of those, uh, you know, Corman used the same sets over and over again, but so, uh, you know, we loved it. And that was the stuff from the uh, early 60s, and that was just before Beatlemania. So, before Beatlemania, we had Mania. And, uh, you know, America loved uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So we pretty much were uh, caught up in that. And, uh, you know, that gothic thing, not real bloody, but just suspenseful, just gothic, you know, just, uh, you know, celebrating uh, one of our uh, dearest and most prolific uh,
1: poets and writers, Edgar Allan Poe. There were movies in the 30s, Edgar Allan Poe movies. Like, for example, there was one called The Black Cat with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Okay, but then of course Karloff was so famous, they said Karloff and Lugosi, they didn't put the Boris in there. Yeah. It's too famous. But that was a fascinating film having nothing whatever to do with anything Poe wrote. The Black Cat was one of the early Universal films. This was around 1935, after, of course, Karloff was famous for being the Frankenstein monster and the mummy, Mm -hmm. and Lugosi famous for Dracula. So putting them together in one film had to be something special.
2: Well, absolutely. Especially in the 30s when people going to the movies. Yeah, they were the superstars. I don't know what that was like. You know, these guys that represented the macabre, the horror, you know, the, uh, the dark side. I mean, it had to be pretty, pretty cool to have lived, you know, in, in, the, in the 30s and to experience that.
1: Okay, the film was out in 1934. And they call it a pre-code horror film. Oh, uh, before the code. For whatever reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-code. It cost all of two hundred thirty-six thousand dollars to make. Hmm. If you haven't seen it, I'm looking at the viewing options because I really like it. You have to pay three ninety-nine for any of the places where you could download films. However, you can see segments of it—short short segments on YouTube. Okay. And then there's a strange scene there. Where Karloff and Lugosi are walking together, and Karloff says, Are we not the living dead? Quote unquote. Basically saying that we're also, we're not alive right now, we're both dead.
2: Oh, that was great. Yeah, that was sort of prophetic, right? Sort of cryptic.
1: Well, I mean, let's face it, we're talking about people here who are really wonderful actors. Mm -hmm. yeah
2: i have uh i talk about nick adams in my in my book and nick adams was uh, a member of uh rebel without a cause and there are people that that say that so many of those actors were cursed nick adams james dean uh salmenio uh natalie wood but uh he starred with uh boris karloff in die monster die and then karloff was in a thing called uh uh, targets. And it was about the uh, Charles Whitman mass shooting. And that was in 1966. And Whitman was a former Marine. And what he did was he climbed that clock tower. Remember, that was in the in Austin, Texas, University of Texas. And he had all kinds of uh, weapons, uh, rifles and everything. And he was a sharpshooter, but he shot 16 students, killed 16. He wounded uh, 32 others. And then uh, the movie uh, Targets came out, and that was uh, another Roger Corman thing. But Karloff played in that, and that was one of his uh, one of his best roles. And uh, and he said that the monster uh, wasn't out, wasn't on the, the stage, wasn't on the screen, but he's out there. And he was sort of letting us know that um, you know bad things were were happening. And this is in 1966. We were sort of uh, you know we thought we were immune. From uh, maybe urban terrorism. And in 1966, that was, this is probably uh, just a shocking example of that. So uh, that was Charles Whitman. And uh, I have that narrative in my in Coal Region Hoodoo. And I uh, put that together with the uh, Nick Adams and uh, Boris Karloff uh,
1: piece. So, By the way, yeah. Die, Monster, Die was probably the last film that Karloff made. In his final years, He had difficulty walking. Yes. So a lot of the time between scenes, he'd be in a wheelchair and then he'd get up and do his scene. And also, I think he had emphysema or something because he'd have to have an oxygen tank and take a breath or two. But he worked until the very end. I think he was 80 or 81 when he died. Unlike Lugosi, who died in his mid-70s, And part of the problem he had, he had a back injury or problem and he got addicted to to opioids or whatever the equivalent in the 1940s was. And it took him years to recover from that. And by the time he did, he was not in good health.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting characters in our in our paranormal universe. huh?
1: Well, and Karloff specifically was the kind of actor who could do anything. He was the first Captain Hook in Peter Pan, or one of the Captain Hooks in the Broadway play. He did Mm -hmm. comedy, he did children's books, he did horror, and everybody liked him because he was a really nice guy, although he was married five times.
2: Okay, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, and then Karloff Connection, okay. I occasionally heard from a woman named Sarah Karloff, his daughter, and in her 60s, years after her dad died she was fighting Universal for a part of the profits. And the reason is they made him such an iconic character as a Frankenstein monster that they had all this merchandising going on. And, of course, you know, Karloff would be paid for the film. There were no residuals or anything. He'd be paid for the film, whatever it was. And all the money Universal made from his likeness, they never shared in. Uh. Hollywood economy, just like we talked earlier about Sean Connery suing the movie producers he worked for in the movie studios about James Garner not getting his Rockford Files residuals and stuff. Boris Karloff, one of the most famous actors of the 30s, 40s, 50s.
2: Yeah. And just a brief story about that. In uh, Coal region Hoodoo, there's the, I talk about the movie uh, um, Targets. And Peter Bogdanovich was the director. And Roger Corman was the producer, and he gave Bogdanovich a shot at being a director. So this was his big shot. So he said, do three things. Keep the film uh, on under budget. Use Boris Karloff, because Karloff owed Corman, like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes worth of acting. And also use parts of the terror. So when uh, Karloff, as uh, Count Orlok, Orloff was there, they were sh- he's there at the drive-in, and they're showing the terror on the screen. And that's when Karlov said that the real monster is not on the screen, but it's out there. And he was referring to a sniper similar to Charles and who killed now, all the. people. Another story
1: about Bela Lugosi. A couple of stories. One, of course, the final films that he did were for Edward, who made the worst oh, films. Oh, Edward, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. His films were so bad, they were good. Yeah, I know. Now, one of the legends here, and I'll tell you that legend in our next segment with our guest this week, Maxim, Gene, and Tim,
20: you're in. Yeah, the Pericast.
6: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the Paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. No matter where you live, what
4: you make, or who you voted for, there are some things that will impact all of us soon. Whether you're concerned about the alarming increase in man-made disasters, financial institutions collapsing, or worsening food shortages, Americans are preparing in numbers not seen since World War II. What's changed is how we prepare. And the folks at My Patriot Supply have made it easier than ever for you to have peace of mind, knowing you're ready for what's next. Go to MyPatriotsupply.com and stock up on over a dozen emergency food kits. These include tasty breakfasts, lunches, dinners, drinks, fruits, veggies, meats, and snacks, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Get at least one kit per person. As we all know, calories equals energy equals survival. My Patriot Supply food kits are in stock and shipped discreetly. We've seen too many Americans let down by institutions we used to trust. It's time to rely on ourselves. MyPatriotSupply.com
11: MyPatriotSupply.com My name is Don Wiskin, and at 42 years old, I suffered a massive heart attack, lost 35% of my heart to damaged tissue, and was supposed to spend the rest of my life on disability. What did I do? I took Extendivite. A garlic and cayenne mix of seven herbs which rebuilt my heart and gave me back my life. For over 17 years now, I have made this formula available to you so you don't have to suffer the same thing I did. Clean your blocked arteries and strengthen your heart and boost your natural immune system. I'm 60 years old now and I still work every day. To get your extendivite call 1-877 928 8822 That's one 928 8822 Or visit partdrop.com. Extendivite is only $69.95 for a two-month supply of either capsules or liquid.
9: Extend your life with Extendovite.
3: If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why.
15: Hi, this is James Fox, director of The Phenomenon and Moment of Contact. You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard
1: of paranormal radio. So, Lugosi did his final films for Ed Wood. As a matter of fact, there was a film called Ed Wood, Uh which... Featured black and white, kind of a yeah. bio, a Tim Burton film. Johnny Depp oh. as Ed Wood. and Martin Landau played Bela Lugosi, and won a Best Supporting Actor award. Correct, yeah. although to me the Hungarian accent was too Jewish to be blunt about it. But Martin Landau yeah. was a terrific actor. Okay, the last film that he did, and I think it was Plan 9 from Outer Space. Lugosi died. Before the film was made. But he was walking around with this hooded cape like Dracula. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he was dead. So, what did Ed Wood do? He was a one hit wonder in terms of filming. He'd never do a retake. Kind of like Clint Eastwood, except Clint Eastwood does good films. Anyway, so what are you going to do? You're star of the film. Bella Lugosi is dead. He had his chiropractor, who was kind of the same size and build as Lugosi, take on the role. And do the final scenes. Because she didn't see the (laughs) face and there was no speaking part.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Ed Wood, ingenious. Yeah. I thought that was a great movie. I loved Ed Wood. I mean, I just like the way they put it together. It had a good feel to it. You know, the movie within a movie.
1: And the other thing, of course, is a famous sci-fi personage of the thirties, forties, fifties, and monster films, Forrest J. Ackerman. Oh, yeah. By the way, worked with Ray Palmer and was a friend of Ray Palmer's. Then, of course, he did Famous Monsters of Filmland. And when he traveled, he wore a ring, which was Bela Lugosi's Dracula ring. Oh, wow. Forrest Ackerman. Of course, he had this fabulous home in L.A. with all these horror and sci-fi memorabilia there.
2: Was he a Philadelphia guy?
1: Forrest Ackerman? I don't know. I knew him slightly. Okay, okay. Believe it or not. I met him the first time. When he offered in Famous Monsters to visit the home of readers, if you wrote a letter, okay? By the way, he was born in L.A. Okay. Okay. So they offered to come to the home of readers who wrote the nicest letter. Now, me being a writer, I was 17 or 18 years old at the time. They said, okay, we'll invite several people to come to your house, which they did, and my mom prepared lunch. And I set up recording studios, kind of, with a mixer and several mics and a tape recorder to pick everything else up. And he stayed about an hour and he was wearing the Dracula ring in his travels. Awesome. I don't have the recording. That's like 500 tape recorders ago. I had two tape yeah. recorders. I mean, I was really into the recording studio thing at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm still doing it, so I've never. I'm living my childhood now. I have a real mixer, an analog mixer with a digital output. I have a real microphone here. I have and instead of course a tape recorder I have my iMac. But just think I never grew up.
2: <laughs> the acoustics, by the way, are just about perfect. I mean it just uh, you know both you guys sound really good. So
1: I'm just in a room without any baffling, but what happens is here is that the microphone is highly directional. And I speak very loud. Let's get back to the world of the paranormal, even though there's so much of that intrinsic to our movies and novels, because a lot of times horror legends came from the paranormal over the centuries.
2: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: So, of course, we have stories like the late Linda Godfrey wrote in Real Wolfmen people who thought there were wolves, and of course we did horror films about them, but she, in her day, would look over the legends of creatures like that, and Hollywood, of course, would take that and come up with stories. Certainly, mass killers like the alleged Vlad the Impaler influenced Bram Stoker to write about Dracula. Mm-hmm.
2: The one that won't go away is Jack the Ripper. I mean, there's been so many books and documentaries, you know, films made about Jack the Ripper. I mean, just uh, there's something about Jack the Ripper that, again, you know, draws us, fascinates us, makes us want to figure out who he was and why he did what he did. And, uh, you know, just an incredible narrative. I have a uh, chapter in Core Region Voodoo called Ripperology. And I talk about that—that that fascination for Jack the Ripper and that fear and all of that, just trying to figure out, you know, why we do that. And uh, so the book is a uh, like a plethora of all these uh, these uh, you know uh, paranormal aspects. You know, looking at it through different uh, lenses, including the sociological and the psychological. So. Uh, we're excited about Coal Region Hoodoo. Uh, again, it was published by Beyond the Fray, and all they do is paranormal titles. Uh, you know, they're from San Diego, but uh, we're pretty uh, excited about the book launch, and it just it's just been out a little over a month. Like I said, so far, we're getting some good reviews. Uh, if we could say it, you know, the book's available on Amazon uh, or through my website of www.maximfuric.com, and that's M A X I M. F-U-R-E-K dot com. I would encourage your listeners to take a look at it and uh, at least read about it on, on my website or on Amazon just to see if that might be something they might want to put in their collection. After this, do you have a sequel in mind? Where do
1: you go from here, Maxim?
2: Good question, Gene. Um, I'm changing direction a little bit. I have a uh, manuscript I'm working on. It's called uh, Dream Gliding, Honoring the Wisdom of the Ancients. And what I claim is that there's nothing new under the sun, that everything that we're talking about and concerned about today, you know, there's guys like me, you, and Tim that we're we're discussing maybe 2,000 years ago. So everything that we're hearing from Deepak Chopra and Anthony Robbins and uh, Eckhart Tolle... The same thing we've heard 2,000 years ago from Jesus Christ and Buddha and Muhammad. So, again, things haven't changed. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. And my book, Dream Gliding, talks about that and just talks about a whole lot of things. Uh, It's sort of a new agey. Uh, I don't know if the word self-help, I mean, it, seemed, it looks like this seemed to be slotted under self-help. But as a former psychologist and addiction specialist, you know, this is something that uh, I've been working on. And, um, you know, it's it's getting done. We're more than halfway through it. And, uh, you know, it should be a uh, an exciting title once I've completed. So it's called Dream Gliding, Honoring the Wisdom of the Ancients.
1: Well, of course, that's something that leads us to the ancient astronaut legends, Yeah, okay. Right, and Uh, just to tell our listeners, if you look through our archives, I'm always happy to plug this for the Paracast. You check our archives, you'll see amongst the guests, we had Eric Von Daniken some years back. Okay. And the other guest was my old friend, David Halperin, who was a retired religious scholar. And that was an interesting discussion because although Halperin doesn't really make a big deal of it, he was dissecting a lot of what... Von Daniken said, and Von Daniken comes up at the end and says, well, that's my interpretation of it. (laughs) So, So I think he felt chastened. I don't want to say we exposed Von Daniken, although we've exposed a few people over the years here on the Paracast, but in this particular case, well, there were other alternatives, because David Halperin does not believe in ancient astronauts. He actually attributes UFOs mostly to the Carl Jung, Collective Unconscious. So we'll get into more discussions, by the way, with our guest Maxim Furek in the After the Powercast podcast, if you're members of the Paracast Plus. You can find us on Twitter, by the way, while Elon Musk allows us to do that, you never know with the way it's going, or if there will even be a Twitter. There's Facebook, of course, where you have two sections for Powercast listeners, we also offer branded merchandise at the Paracast.shop or the Paracast.store with four different logos to select from the Paracast.shop, the Paracast.store, and we also present the Paracast Plus at the Paracast.plus. And what you get there is a version of this show free of the network ads, higher audio, and the very exclusive after the Paracast podcast where you never know what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen this week, of course, is our guest, Maxim Furek, is going to hang out for more discussion on After the Paracast. Check out the theparacast.plus and get this at 20% discount with the coupon code UFO20, UFO20 for five-year lifetime subscriptions to Plus. Hey there, Maxim. Thanks for joining us on The Paracast.
2: Yeah, Gene, this is great.